text for today's sermon will be Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, reverence, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, amid the numerous government mandates regarding masks and social distancing in church, some Christian thinkers have argued that Christians should always obey the government unless asked to sin. So based on that reasoning, mask regulations, social distancing should be strictly followed because it is not a sin to wear a mask. But is such reasoning, in fact, reasonable? Does the government have authority from God to mandate anything in your life, sin accepted, and are Christians and all people really duty-bound then to obey such mandates as they touch every area of life? Does the state have such sovereignty? We will address this question today. I trust we'll do it in a way that will be scriptural, logical, and practical. Now, the fact that thousands of churches, even those who claim to be evangelical and even reformed, closed their doors when the government told them demonstrates the reality that the church needs to do a better job of understanding this and applying God's law to all of life. We need to do a better job of understanding what the Bible teaches about civil government. If churches had done so prior to the coronavirus, If they had done their homework, perhaps many would have boldly stood on God's word rather than bowing to the state and closing their doors. And perhaps many today would not unjustly force parishioners to wear a mask or be forced to fellowship elsewhere. The majority of churches, quite frankly, were simply unprepared to deal with government mandates relating to the church. They didn't know how to respond because for years they dismissed their brothers and sisters in Christ who urged them to apply the Lordship of Christ to every area of life, including their view of the civil magistrate. The coronavirus then revealed what is at the heart of the professing church in America and abroad, a shallow, pietistic view of Christianity. A shallow, pietistic view of Christianity. 
a religion which has no masculinity to it, no courage, no boldness, and most relevant today, no application to all of life. Christians have not been taught these things. Instead of rigorously applying God's law to every sphere of human actions, Christians have been forced to be content with trite cliches or shallow answers. Because of this aversion to deep thinking about God's law and the different spheres of authority, most churches in America were at a complete loss as to what to do when the government mandated that they cease meeting. And if you read some of the literature, if you interact with some pastors, it's no secret that churches and church leaders didn't know what to do. They didn't know the right answer. They had, they had no clue what to do. They said, we simply don't know what to do here. And while I appreciate the honesty of those who said, you know what, we don't know what to do. We don't know if we should obey the Bible when it says we should meet or we should listen to the government. I appreciate the honesty. It shows us the fruit of years and years of failing to deeply think about how the law word of God applies to every area of life. Now, perhaps it's not, it's not surprising that Many of those churches that have been standing on God's word for years prior to the coronavirus as the authority for all of life, including the the realm of government, it's not surprising that many of those churches stood firm on the word of God and did not stop meeting. But for the mass of churches, churches that had already joined themselves to the pagan state with the chains of a 501c3 status that says, hey, the church is not going to preach on things that the government says we're not allowed to. For those churches, the government mandates, or rather man-made mandates, held sway. And one of the things at the heart of the professing church's misguided response to the coronavirus has been an unbiblical, shallow view of government. And I'm not speaking today mainly about the church's duty to meet, regardless of threats or mandates from the government. We have discussed that in the past. I want to step back and help us understand just what authority the government has over man. Many today will claim that Christians should fall in line and wear a mask or do anything else whenever the government mandates it, as long as it's not sin. However, is that the case? Is it true that the government can mandate you to do anything as long as it is not sin? Now, to help us think about government biblically, I want to give you three categories of government laws and how we ought to respond to those different categories. But before I do that, I have to give the doctrine. So we're going to look at the doctrine of what God has authorized the state to do, and then we'll look at the application by considering three categories of governmental laws and how you should respond to each of those categories. So first this morning, let us consider the doctrine from Romans chapter 13. And the doctrine is simply this. God authorized or instituted or established the state, the civil government, to punish evil. So God instituted the government to punish evil. The truth is that the government does not have the authority to mandate anything. God has granted the government the limited authority to punish evil. If the government goes beyond this divine boundary, it has overstepped its authority 
and is acting in an unauthorized manner. Now, sadly, many Christians erroneously think that this passage that we'll look at in Romans 13, they think that it affirms this cliche that unless the government asks you to sin, you must obey them. Friends, that is a very shallow way to look at this amazing portion of God's word. And it is likely the result of a general lack of serious thought regarding the law of God, the kingship of Christ, and the role of civil government as laid out in Scripture. So we need to walk through these verses. The first thing we will see quite clearly in this passage in Romans 13 is that these verses are prescriptive, not necessarily descriptive. In other words, these passages lay out what God instituted government to do, not what government always does do. Look first at verse 1, where it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. This lays the foundation for all that follows. There is no authority except from God. In other words, all human authority, all human institutions are derived and therefore limited. No human authority has unlimited authority. It is all derived from God. No human authority is at the level of God. Now, humanistic, secular religion says that the state is God, and unfortunately, that thinking has crept into the church to a degree. Humanistic religion says the state is God. Christianity says God is over the state. Specifically, Jesus Christ is ruling over the nations. Every human authority, therefore, answers to Christ. Jesus is the king. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1.5. Jesus is the prince of the king of the earth. And Matthew 28.18 is a passage we know very well, but we need to think about the implication of what Jesus said when he said, all authority in heaven and where and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ has authority right now over every realm on earth, over every institution. So we are to submit to governing institutions because Christ authorizes them. They have been instituted by Christ. Instituted by Christ. The idea is that government is something that God instituted for the good of the people. So does that mean that then we have to obey everything the government says? Let's keep reading and look. The passage tells us what God instituted government to do. You know, most Christians, it seems, and they're thinking, stop reading at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's it. Submit to authorities, as if that were all Paul wrote. But Paul is making a statement here that everyone should submit to the institutions that God has ordained. We should not oppose the idea of government. We should not oppose the ordinance of government. We should not say that government is a bad idea and that anarchy would be better. That would be going against the, what God has instituted in the form of civil government. But Paul goes on here. And here's the key that you must understand. Paul is about to tell us what God instituted government to do. He is about to tell us what authority the government has. Does the government have the authority, for example, to persecute 
Christians, does the government have the authority to tell you what you can or cannot eat? Does the government have the authority to tell you where your kids must go to school? Paul says that's not what God instituted government for. That's not what God instituted government for. Paul, writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that if you resist authority, you will incur judgment. And why? Look at verse 3. If you resist, it says in verse 2, you you will incur judgment. Why? Beginning of verse 3 says, For or because rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. We need to, we need to highlight this verse, if not in our Bibles, in our minds, when we're thinking about civil government. This is the authority that God has granted to the civil government to be a terror to bad conduct, or as the Apostle Peter puts it, to punish those who do evil in 1 Peter 2.14. I want to ask you a question. When the government punishes good conduct, is it acting with authorization from God? Is the government authorized to be a terror to good conduct? The answer is no. God does not authorize the government to be a terror to good conduct. If you remember one thing from this message today, remember this. Magistrates are not authorized to make iniquitous decrees, and you are not obligated to obey them. Magistrates are not authorized to make iniquitous decrees, and you are not obligated to obey them. God will hold wicked magistrates accountable for their unjust, unauthorized decrees. The prophet Isaiah warned in Isaiah chapter 10, listen to what Isaiah said. He said, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers, the lawmakers, if you will, who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Now, there is a mindset prevalent today, especially among those who have adopted a pietistic view of Christianity and have opposed the purpose of the Lord regarding civil governments. There is a mindset that says it is unbiblical to focus on the idea of rights or the limitations of civil government. They'll even say we won't find such things in the Bible where people are concerned about justice and righteousness being applied in society and people having the freedom to live out their life without government mandates and oppression. When I hear things like that, I have to scratch my head and wonder if they've ever read Isaiah. Have they ever read Jeremiah? Have they ever read Amos? Where the prophets call out the sin of rulers. They indict them for their injustice and wickedness in enforcing iniquitous decrees, in punishing good conduct. It's wrong to say we shouldn't be concerned about rights. We have no rights, uh, only grace as Christians. That's... Folks, that's quite frankly, that's pietistic jargon to say things like that. It's shallow and it doesn't take into account the full counsel of God's word and how it applies to all of life. The prophet Isaiah cared about the rights of the people. When the government oppresses the people by taking away their rights, by punishing good conduct, God pronounces a curse on them. Woe to them. 
Isaiah says. And again, and he says it earlier in Isaiah 5, he says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So again, you, if you're like me, have heard it said that unless the government asks us to sin, we're obligated to obey. According to that reasoning, even if the government forbids something that is good, they're authorized by God to compel us to obey, and we're required to submit to God as long as they don't ask us to sin. That's nearly a blank check for the government to regulate every area of your life. And it ignores any sort of understanding of the spheres that God, that God has ordained in this world. Paul is telling us very clearly in Romans 13 what the government is authorized by God to do and therefore also what they are not authorized to do. They are not authorized, they are not instituted by God to be a terror to good conduct. This cannot get much clearer. But Paul even explains it even further. In verse 3, at the end of verse 3, he says, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. This is prescriptive. Paul is telling us that God has ordained the magistrate to punish evil. And if you do not do evil, then you have no reason to fear the godly administration of magistrates. If you don't do what is evil, you have no reason to fear the correct administration of magistrates. You see, human government is not evil in itself. It's a good thing if used lawfully. The civil leader is to be a terror to bad conduct. He's described as an avenger of God who punishes evil. Again, the question, the obvious question we have to ask is, punish evil according to what standard? Did Paul mean to say, when he said that the magistrate is the avenger of God who carries out God's wrath, did he mean to say that when pagan governors behead Christians, they're carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer? You see, if you take this passage as descriptive, as if Paul's saying, hey, this is what, in all that the government does, all they do is authorized by God, all they do is, is just, then you have to say that when pagan governors beheaded Christians, they were following out God's law and executing God's wrath. Or did Peter intend to teach that when unjust leaders persecute Christians, they're punishing those who do evil? When unjust magistrates force women to have abortions, are they punishing those who do evil? Certainly not. It's abundantly clear that Paul and Peter are speaking prescriptively, not descriptively. In other words, they're telling us what God has instituted governments to do. They're telling us what governments can do and what they should be doing. Now, if you're still having a hard time accepting this, that this is a prescriptive passage where God is laying out what the government is authorized to do, let me briefly give you three reasons, more reasons why this is prescriptive. Number one, the next verses, if we keep reading, tell us that God's wrath, not man's, God's wrath is that which is being carried out. So here's what's clear. If you do evil, you should rightly fear the sword of the magistrate. Now, here's what we need to understand. Who defines evil? Does the state define evil? Does the state get the right from God to say what is evil? 
If so, it would mean that the wrath of God is being carried out on people who disobey man's law, not God's law. For example, when the state persecutes Christians for preaching the gospel, according to this, the logic that they, the state can do whatever they wish, or that the state has the authority to, um, to do anything at all, and this is not prescriptive, then when the state punishes Christians for preaching the gospel, the state is carrying out God's wrath. Or if the state arrests Amish farmers for selling raw milk, they're carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is not what Paul means. He's saying that the civil magistrate is a servant of God who carries out God's wrath. So if the magistrate is the servant of God who carries out God's wrath, who in that relationship is the one determining what is evil? And who is the one determining what should cause wrath, the wrath of God to be unleashed? The servant is not greater than the master. The civil magistrate is the servant of God, and God determines what is evil, and he determines what the state can punish for. So this is prescriptive because it says the wrath of God is that which is being carried out when the magistrate executes their role properly. If it were the other way around, then we'd be forced to say when the state punishes Christians for preaching the gospel, when the state punishes people for selling raw milk or eggs to their neighbor, that that's God's wrath being carried out on the wrongdoer. It's illogical. Second reason that this that this passage is prescriptive is that Peter, uh, in 1 Peter 3, affirms that it is not always the case that the government only punishes bad conduct. It's not always the case. This is clear, clearly prescriptive. This is saying how the government should act, not how they necessarily do act. In 1 Peter 3, shortly after the passage we read earlier where Peter says, hey, this is what the government is to do is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter says something very interesting in 1 Peter 3, chapter 13. So the next chapter, after talking about the role of the government, he says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if you do good, there should be no reason for the government to punish you because God created government to punish evil, not good. Peter doesn't stop there. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter understands the complexities of life and he understands the sinfulness of men. Again, a lot of Christians stop at the, at the verse of submit to the government. They're always for your good, but they don't keep reading. And say, well, they say, well, the government would never bother you if you do what is good. Folks, that is not always true. The Apostle Peter recognizes that. You will suffer many times at the hands of unjust magistrates. And Peter knew it. You see, Peter knows that what he said a chapter earlier is prescriptive, not descriptive. The magistrate is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good but they don't always do that. Number three, the third reason that these passages, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, are prescriptive is that the Bible and church history clearly shows that the government often, sadly, does punish good conduct. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's clear to any uh, student of the word that the Bible and church history is full of examples of the government punishing good conduct. The early church was persecuted for their faith. 
Christians throughout history have been persecuted for their faith by civil magistrates. To say these passages are providing a blanket statement that all the government does is always done to punish evildoers is patently false. It would be just as false to say something like that in relation to the other spheres of authority. That, a, that an ecclesiastical leader has never done wrong and overstepped their bounds. That a father in the home has never done wrong. Of course, there have been times where men have gone beyond what God has authorized them to do. The apostles are teaching that the civil ruler is only acting appropriately when he follows God's standard in punishing evil. You see, God has given different spheres of authority in this world. They are only authorized to do what God designed them for. For some reason, people think that the government has the highest authority on earth, even more than the family or the church. This is not the case. No one sphere is higher than another. They all have different roles. They each receive their authority from the risen Christ. Remember, remember, all authority is his. And so he tells each sphere how to exercise the authority that he has given him. Each institution, family, church, state, is to exercise its limited authority in the way, here's the key, that God prescribes in his word. That God prescribes in his word. We seem to understand this concept when it comes to the family or the church, that the, the duties and the responsibilities and the authority for each of those spheres, spheres is laid out in the word. But when it comes to the state, Christians get confused and don't understand that God has also specifically laid out what the state can do, what the state is authorized to do. Instead of looking to God's word to direct and guide civil leaders, Christians have accepted the humanistic idea that man is free to govern as he wishes, apart from adhering to God's law. We have chosen autonomy or self-law over theonomy or God's law. A failure to understand the roles of the different spheres that God has instituted has caused well-meaning Christians to conclude that the government has some special authority to do whatever it wants, as long as it doesn't ask us to sin, and we are duty-bound to obey unless we are forced to sin. Even if the state is acting outside what it has been authorized to do, these people will tell you, you are obligated to obey them. The only problem with that is that it's wrong. It's false teaching. The text does not allow it, nor does experience or church history. So we have looked at Romans 13, what Paul says the state is authorized to do, what God instituted the state for. That's the doctrine. The state has been instituted to punish evildoers, to be a terror to bad conduct, not to punish good conduct. So now let's make application. It's not enough to understand the Bible. We have to apply it. And one of the problems with much of the Bible teaching that goes on in this nation is it does not pass the test of application. It cannot be applied to life in a way that is consistent with what the Bible teaches and what the church has experienced in history. The teaching that says, unless the government asks you to sin, you have to obey, is an example of that. It fails the test of first, scripture, secondly, of church history, and third, of being able to be applied practically in life. 
So I want to give you three categories of laws and how Christian, how the Christian, and really anyone, because God's law applies to everyone, so how you are to respond to these three categories of laws. And I will give you some examples. So if we apply what we know from Scripture about the limitations explicit in the text, this is what the government is authorized to do. We can form three categories of laws that we will and do interact with from the civil magistrates. So here are the three categories. Let me list them and then I'll go through them. Number one, laws you must obey. So government laws you must obey. It's category one laws. Category two laws, laws you must disobey. Laws you must disobey. And category three laws are laws that you may freely choose to obey or disobey as your conscience dictates. Those are the three categories. Let's walk through them briefly. Number one, category one. Category one laws are laws you must obey. These are laws that the government has issued that are consistent with God's law. For example, a law against theft must be followed. God says, thou shall not steal. When the government makes a law that says you shall not steal your neighbor's goods, you must obey that law. A law against rape must be followed. A law against bearing false witness in court must be followed. And even if the government didn't have these laws, everyone would still be required to obey God's law. But anytime the government gets it right, and a broken clock is right at least twice a day, you must obey. If the government says do not murder, you must obey. You have no choice in the matter. You don't have the freedom to say, well, my conscience says that the government can't authorize that. This is the very purpose for which God instituted government. And if you resist the government here, you should fear for the government, if acting as intended, should punish these evils and execute God's wrath on you for rebelling against God's ordinance. So those are laws you must obey. That's the purpose of civil government. Category one laws should be fairly straightforward. Category two laws, laws you must disobey. Any law which contradicts God's law must be disobeyed. For example, a law that forbids you to share the gospel must be disobeyed. God commands Christians to share the gospel. Therefore, if the state says you are not to share the gospel, we must disobey the state and obey God rather than man. A law that would require someone, a woman to get an abortion if they have more than one child must be disobeyed. That woman, that father must do everything in their power to disobey that law because murder is forbidden in God's law. So if the state says you must get an abortion, you must say, no, I will disobey that law. I will obey God's law. A law that says the church cannot gather must be disobeyed because God says we must gather. This category should be fairly straightforward, too, although sadly many churches drop the ball here, so to speak, uh, when they close their doors during the coronavirus. God's law says we must gather, even if the state says we are not to. We must follow God's law. So that's category two. If the state says you have to do something that is contradicting God's, God's law, you must disobey the state. If the state says don't preach, we're going to disobey that law. If the state says you have to get an abortion, which is murder, we're going to disobey that law. If the state says you can't gather with Christians, we're going to disobey that law. Okay, those are laws that, that you must disobey. You have to obey God. 
rather than man. Now we come to category three. Category three laws are laws that you can choose to obey or disobey as your circumstances and conscience dictates. Now here is where people get confused or are prone to object, not understanding what we just talked about in Romans 13, what the government is actually authorized to do. So I trust that I can, with God's help, show you that this category is valid and important. So I'm going to give you examples first of laws in this category, and then I'm going to close out um, this time by showing the validity of this category with three lines of reasoning. But first, let me give you the examples. So here are some laws which a person may disobey with a clean conscience, even if, and here's the key, even if obeying these laws would not necessarily be sin. So the argument from what I would call a pietistic, shallow view of Christianity says, hey, if the government doesn't ask you to sin, you have to do whatever they say. Here are laws that you could obey these laws and you wouldn't be in sin, but you are not obligated to obey. And as we look at these examples, you'll see that I'm going to apply the principles that we have seen from Romans 13. The position that you have to obey these laws and that you're obligated to obey these laws will not stand the test of consistency. These aren't the only examples, but if you're going to try to contradict the truth that I'm going to lay out here, you have to say that these and other examples are, peop- are examples of people sinning against God and worthy to receive not only God's wrath in the form of governmental punishment, but also eternal damnation. So let's look at these examples. Example number one of a law you may disobey, even though it doesn't require you to sin, would be laws which forbid midwives to help mothers give birth. Now, giving birth at a hospital is not a sin. Okay? Pretty clear. But does the government have the authority to, to forbid midwives to do home births or to create unrealistic regulations that essentially prevent midwives from coming into your home and providing the service of helping a mother deliver her child? Here's the key question I want you to consider, and I'm going to ask this question for each of these examples. Is it evil to help mothers give birth to their babies? Is that evil? Is it evil for a midwife to help a mother deliver her child? Certainly not. It's a good thing. Therefore, the government has no authority from God to forbid good conduct. A Christian family that feels the best thing for them to do is use a midwife, even if the state doesn't allow it, or has regulations that make it nearly impossible, is not in sin by disobeying the government, even though they could obey the government and go to the hospital and not sin. That some people would argue that it's a sin to use a midwife if the government says you're not allowed to is very concerning to me. It shows that they have a very confused understanding of sin, which I'll touch on later, and a very inflated view of the government's authority, that the government could punish good conduct and therefore make it sin to do something that is good. Example two of a law that you may disobey even though it doesn't require you to sin, laws which require you to vaccinate your children. Now, vaccinating in general is not a sin if someone chooses to do that, but does the government have authority to force you to? Here's the key question. Is it evil For a parent to say, you know what, I don't want to vaccinate my child right now, or I don't want to give them this vaccine, is that evil for a parent to make that choice? 
based on their research and reasoning, it's not evil for a parent to make that decision. Parents are authorized by God to choose what is best for their children. There's nothing evil about delaying or skipping certain vaccines. Therefore, the government has no authority from God to forbid the good conduct of parents in parenting their children. You may disobey that law because the government doesn't have authority to give that law, even if you could obey and not sin. Example number three of a law you may disobey even though it doesn't require you to sin, laws which forbid parents from educating their children at home. Now, education outside the home in general is not a sin, although I'm not going to get into the the secular public education and what they're teaching children, but just in general, if you chose to educate your child outside the home, it wouldn't be sin. But does the government have authority to forbid parents from homeschooling? Here's the question. Is it evil for parents to homeschool their children? Certainly not. It's a good thing. Therefore, the government has no authority from God to forbid good conduct. You may disobey that law freely. Example number four of a law you may disobey even though it doesn't require you to sin. Laws which forbid the buying or selling of food. For example, raw milk. Now, buying food from government endorsed companies, government sponsored sometimes with these lobbyists, buying food from them is not sin. It's not wrong. So we could say, well, I'm going to have to obey the government here because it's not wrong to buy all the food from these big manufacturers. But does the government have authority to forbid you from buying food, from buying milk, from buying eggs, from buying cheese from your neighbor? Here's the question. Is it evil to buy and sell food? Is it evil to do that? Certainly not. It's a good thing. God created food for the good, for our good. If someone and the, the work of their hands is to produce cheese or milk or eggs and they want to sell it to their neighbor, that's a good thing. God created that to help people, to benefit them. It's a good thing. Therefore, the government has no authority from God to forbid such good conduct. You can freely disobey a law from the government that says you are not allowed to buy that food product. Now, you can choose to obey the government. You have that right as well in this case. But you have the freedom to obey or disobey these laws. Example number five, last one here, of a law that you may disobey even though it doesn't require you to sin. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this. We could spend a lot more time. But these, for example, the laws which require you to attend a specific church. Now, this happened in church history. Now, if such a church has the gospel right, we could say, well, it wouldn't be sinful to go there. So I could obey the government and go to the state-endorsed church and not be in sin. But does the government have the authority to tell you where to go to church? Here's the key question. Is it evil to go to a non-state-sponsored church? Certainly not. Therefore, the government has no authority from God to forbid good conduct. The separatists in England... The men and women who became known as the pilgrims lived this out. They could have went to the state church, which many Christians, many Puritans stayed in and recognized there were issues, but they could see it as a true church that had the gospel. The separatists refused to because they 
one of the things they realized was that the government doesn't have authority to make those sort of rules and regulations. So they disobeyed a law, even though they could have obeyed it and not sinned. The examples go on and on and on. And these examples are not, you know, ivory tower examples. I've lived these. Many people live through these. They're very real. And anytime the government forbids some type of good conduct, you can choose whether to obey or disobey it. Now, sometimes you choose to just obey the government due to a desire to be free of what I call government bullying and injustice. Sometimes it's better to suffer and not be able to do what you have the right to do because you don't want to be oppressed and bullied by the government. But that's your decision to make. And as Christians, we should support those who would make the decision to do good things that God has created for our good, even if the government says you're not allowed to. Now, I want to make a side note here. When we look at these, quite frankly, ridiculous laws, and there's so many more that are absurd, why would anyone want anything other than God's law? This is the alternative. Laws which tell you you can't have a midwife come into your home to help you give birth, but you can murder your child at Planned Parenthood. That's man's law. We have substituted God's law for man's law. And it's crazy that that even professing Christians would belittle and demean God's law as if man could come up with something better than what God has said, this is how society should operate. It's, It's absurdity that we would think that we can come up with a better law than God. We can't. God's law is the best. You have to understand that some people still make this claim that we have to obey the government in all things, sin accepting, and then they'll never put their claim to the test of Scripture and reason. God's word never says such a thing, that you have to obey the government no matter what they say, as long as they don't ask you to sin. It's inconsistent with Scripture, and it's inconsistent with sound reason to make such a claim. We've abandoned God's law, and here's what we have. Laws which forbid midwives to give birth, to help, to, to help mothers give birth. Laws which terrorize Amish farmers who are selling milk and eggs. That's man's law. It's unjust and oppressive. And here's the thing that really concerns me, is that people think this stuff is irrelevant. They'll say, well, we're in the business of preaching the gospel. We just got to preach the gospel. As if the gospel didn't come and transform everything. As if the gospel does not impact how we parent, how we do business, how we interact with our neighbor, how we view children, how we live out every area of our lives. This sort, the sort of pietistic worldview that says, well, just obey the government, whatever they say, leads to more tyranny and secularism, things which are not blessings to our neighbors. During this time of the coronavirus and people starting to think about these things, I've heard things like, well, you know, in other places in, in the world, these freedoms don't exist. Therefore, we shouldn't really care about righteousness or justice being done because it's not happening in other places. That doesn't make any sense. Read the Psalms. Read the prophets. God cares deeply about justice and righteousness being applied in society. And just because in America we have greater freedoms and some Christians are suffering under more oppression doesn't mean we should give up the freedoms we have. We should look to God's word and preach to the magistrates Here is what God has authorized you to do. 
if we love our neighbors, we don't simply, quote unquote, preach the gospel to them and then care nothing for justice on this earth. We are to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God cares about righteousness and justice on earth. And it's sinful, it's wrong for us to think that we know better than the prophets, better than God, and to say that Christians shouldn't be concerned about such things. Now, I want to give the three lines of reasoning to prove the validity of this third category, and then I'll stop. So, the three lines of reasoning that prove the validity of the category three, that there are laws that the government makes that you can choose to obey or disobey. One, we're gonna, one is application from the limited purpose and authority of government. Two is the absurdity of the contrary. And three is a biblical example of this happening, disobeying a government order when obedience to said order would not have been sin. Let me make this brief. The first reason the category three laws are valid is because we are applying the truth of the limited purpose and authority of government. Why do we think that government has this special authority to tell us to do just about anything? That idea is not biblical, but humanistic. That idea, the idea that man derives its right, his rights from the state is ungodly and unbiblical. The state does not have supreme authority on earth. The magistrate is the servant of Jesus. We seem to understand this in regards to other spheres. Listen, if a church pastor said, hey, you're required to vaccinate your children, most Christians would rightly say, well, hey, wait a minute. That's not what God authorized you to do as a pastor. You're not authorized to do just anything. There's certain things God said you can do. They don't usually, I hope they don't say, well, we have since the pastors to be obeyed and the Bible says obey your, your leaders, and since it's not sinful to vaccinate your children, therefore we have to obey. If a pastor ever tells us, vaccinate your children, you have to obey the pastor because he's not asking you to sin. That would be illogical. But then why do some think that the government, when the government tells us something, we have to do it as long as it's not sin? It's because we bought into this humanistic, man-centered view of, of humanity and government. We believe, if we believe that, like the secularists do, that man gets his rights from the state, and therefore the state has the authority to order man in every minute area of life, from what he eats to what he injects into his children's bodies, to how uh, they choose families choose for their children to be delivered. It's not honoring to God to think that our idea of what the state is authorized to do is better than God's idea. So the application from the limited purposes purpose of government confirms that there will be laws made that we don't have to obey, even though they're not asking us to sin. Number two, the absurdity of the contrary. If the government is authorized by God to tell you to do anything other than sin, the results would be absurd. And let me show you. First of all, the case is clear from Scripture. God hasn't done that. So that's bottom line right there, number one. The role of government is to punish evil. God didn't authorize government to punish good behavior. So you're no, under no obligation to obey when they exceed that uh, authority. If they are authorized, and if Christians are required to obey the government in anything, as long as it's not sin, then Christians are, in fact, in sin for doing these things in certain parts of this nation and the world. Number one, homeschooling their children. Number two, buying or selling food, raw milk. Three, choosing to give birth to their babies in their home with a midwife. If the contrary is true, 
that Christians are obligated to obey anything the government asks you to do, sin accepting, then the government could legitimately dictate every aspect of your life. And if you think that's a bridge too far, you have not been paying attention to the laws that have been passed in the United States of America and throughout the world. When Christianity is eroded, tyranny and humanistic religion takes its place. And if people think that, uh, I don't know how people could think that, especially a Christian could say that God's law is harsh or anything like that. You want harsh laws? Look to the man-made laws that are continuing to be made in this nation. If the government is authorized to tell you what to do, sin accepting, they can dictate every area of your life. And if you need more convincing that the government makes ridiculous, unjust laws, then you haven't been paying attention to what's been going on in this nation for the past 20 years. Furthermore, the view that says you have to obey what the government says, sin accepting, perverts the doctrine of sin. Because it basically says, if you do something that is good, and the government said you couldn't, you are in sin. Sin is a serious offense against a holy God. Even sins of the heart, like envy, pride, or lust, are worthy of eternal damnation apart from Christ. To be consistent, we have to be consistent in our theology, to be consistent with the view that Christians are sinning, if they do not obey the government in every area of life, unless they're asked to sin, if we're going to be consistent with that, we have to preach that that Amish farmer down the road who milks his cow and then sells that jug of milk to his neighbor is sinning against the holy God. That action is an affront to a holy God and worthy of an eternity of hell. It's... It's unbiblical, illogical, and unpractical to make that claim. We would have to preach with that sort, with the the, the intensity that we are that we are to preach against sin. That when a midwife comes into your home and helps a mother give birth and bring a child into the world, that they are in sin, and that God's wrath is upon them, and that if they don't repent, they will spend eternity in hell. It's a mockery of what God has said in his word regarding what is good and regarding what the government is authorized to do. Let's be consistent in our thinking. We can't just throw out cliches. Well, if the government asks you to do something, it's not sin. You have to obey. Think about what you're saying. The absurdity of the contrary. And finally, the third reason, line of reasoning that I think proves the validity of category three laws, laws you may choose to obey or disobey, is a biblical example of disobeying a government order when obedience to that order would not have been sin. This is very interesting. Not only does this show that there is a biblical precedent for not doing what the magistrates say, even though you could do so and not be in sin, but it also shows that even the Apostle Paul didn't think that preaching the gospel, being just about preaching the gospel, meant we do not care at all about rights or justice. So turn to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, we have the account of Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. In verse 22 of chapter 16, the magistrates give orders to beat them with rods, and then they throw them in prison. Now we have the bit about Paul and Silas singing hymns in in prison, and God sends an earthquake, and the jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks the prisoners have escaped. 
Of course, they didn't escape, and Paul says, don't kill yourself, and Paul and Silas preach the gospel to the jailer. Him and his family are converted. Now, we get to the point in verse 35 here. Um, the next day, it says, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So not only did the magistrates send orders, as the CSB renders it, but the jailer ordered them to come out. Come out now and go in peace. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. Go. Now, would it have been sinful for Paul to obey that command and leave prison? Certainly not. Paul could have left prison. Would there have been no sin in that? He could have obeyed the order from the magistrates to leave the prison. Therefore, according to the pietistic, simplistic cliche of if the government doesn't ask us to sin, we have to obey, Paul should have walked out of that prison door. But you know what? Paul didn't. He didn't obey that government order. He disobeyed. He could have obeyed without sinning, but he didn't. Look at verse 37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? Do they not? They're telling me, get get out. We, We want you to leave because we want this to be done under the the cover we want this to be kept secret we don't want people to know what has happened we're telling you to leave prison now what does paul say no he says no let them come themselves and take us out let them come themselves and take us out there is a time for individual christians to lay down their rights but those are decisions that must be made by each brother or sister in christ We all have to make those decisions. The Apostle Paul, who on some occasions did lay down his rights, recognized that there were times to stand on your rights, as we see here in Acts 16. Now, one of the reasons Paul may have done this was to set the precedent for the fledgling church in Philippi. He knew the authorities would be prone to persecute the Christians in Philippi, and he wanted to remind the authorities, perhaps, that they had no authority to do what they did to Paul a Roman citizen. Perhaps there were other Roman citizens in the Philippian church that could likewise stand on their rights. Or perhaps Paul's principal stand would prevent the authorities from wantonly persecuting the young church. In either case, whatever the reason was, Paul stood on his rights and he disobeyed the government order to leave the prison. Now the application to today is that by uh, refusing to submit to unjust unbiblical, foolish mandates, Christians are setting a good precedent that neither the government nor misguided pastors, when they force congregants to wear masks or stay away from their brothers and sisters in Christ, that neither the government nor church leaders have the authority to make unauthorized laws. By applying the gospel to all of life, we begin to show the world around us how to resist tyranny peacefully, right? But how to resist it, how to understand, how to think about these things. The pietistic teachers would have your conscience in bondage to the humanistic state. They would have your conscience in bondage. 
you have to go read through all the myriad of laws. Again, when people belittle God's law, God's law is, is concise, it's practical. Look at the pages and pages and pages of ridiculous laws that have come out of not biblical law, but humanistic law. The pietistic teachers who tell you to obey whatever the government says would have you in bondage to do whatever the government tells you to do, as long as it's not sin. The, you know, the Pharisees and scribes were the religious authorities in Jesus' day. And what did they do? They loaded the people with burdens hard to bear. And they themselves did not touch the burdens with one of their fingers. And Jesus didn't follow or endorse their unauthorized mandates that were made in addition to what God authorized them to do as religious leaders. And those who will force Christians to submit to every unauthorized mandate from the government are loading Christians with burdens hard to bear. They are placing a yoke on the neck of Christians that neither they nor their fathers would be able to bear. Christians are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are not to seek violent revolution, and we do not need to stand on our rights all the time. But we are not to be ignorant. We are not to set bad precedents, which will end up hurting others. To grant the government the authority to direct your life is to ignore what God designed it for. In order to make the case that the government has the authority to tell you what to do in every area of your life, you must prove that Scripture teaches it. The Bible nowhere teaches such an absurd doctrine. Romans 13 lays out the role of civil government. The Apostle Paul says this is what they're supposed to do. Peter says this is what they're authorized to do, but they don't always do it. The Apostle Paul disobeyed the government, even though he didn't need to. He could have walked out of that prison door. Tyranny has consistently been eroded as true Christianity has spread. When Christians understand that Jesus is king of the government, that Jesus is king of all spheres, the world will take notice when we consistently stand on that truth. There's a reason that one of the main charges against Christians was that they acted against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus, in Acts 17. King Jesus stands above all human spheres. Every lesser leader is to submit to him. We will respect authority, but we will not grant them more authority than Christ does. Christ alone has the authority to tell the state what they can and cannot do. He is our king, and every lesser magistrate is only authorized to do what Christ does. Do not let false teaching put you in bondage to the humanistic view of the state. Submit to God. Follow God's law. Be respectful of those in authority. But do not lose sight of the fact that Christ is king. All authority is his. And the state is only authorized to do what Christ has instituted it to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law, which is so good. You are so gracious to us that you would have revealed yourself to us. We look around and see man's law and the perversion of justice and the tyranny that we see in this land and throughout the world. And we pray, Lord, that as the gospel goes forth, your word would be uh, stored up in people's hearts, that there would be conversions, that rulers would, would govern according to your law word. We pray for Christians to stand firm on your word, 
to not cower in fear when the government issues mandates against the church. We pray for boldness for churches. We pray for repentance, the churches who have abandoned the clear mandates from your word, that, that it would be there would be a, an open repentance and a change, and Christians would would now turn to your word more than ever and see that to the law or to the testimony is where we must go. All else is nothing is is worthless and vain. Pray that you would apply these, these truths to our lives and that we would be faithful in all that you teach us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.